Hello everybody. This sermon is the second in our series looking at the Exodus. Uh, now we're in Exodus chapter 2 and we find some reflections on failure. Emily bought me a book for Christmas. It is the autobiography of Frank Fraser Darling. He was a naturalist who lived alone with his family on remote Scottish islands studying the wildlife in the early 1900s. I'm really enjoying the book. We share many of the same instincts and ambitions. But on almost the very first page, there was a quote that I've not been able to stop thinking about. Fraser Darling was describing what led him to step out and make the move to live on an uninhabited island near Harris. One day, a friend came to him and said this. If a man has not got where he wishes to be by the time he's 40... He is a failure altogether and he'll never be getting there. Do you hear me? If a man has not got where he wishes to be by the time he's 40, he's a failure altogether. I just cannot get those words out of my mind. I turn 36 tomorrow. That means I have four years left. I need to think about what I really want to accomplish in my life. The reason this quote keeps rolling around my mind is because I have a problem with failure. It's been the greatest fear of my life. I went to a school that pushed you hard. For six years, I lived with the fear of failing my exams. Of course, as the pressure built up, I did end up failing my exams and that made everything worse. As many of you know, I'm a person who struggles with anxiety And much of that anxiety is linked to this fear of failing. Failing as a son, failing as a husband, failing as a minister, failing even as a Christian sometimes. And this fear of failure can be crippling. I should know, I've done enough counselling over the years. But it's not just me. Many people feel as though they live their lives under the shadow of failure. Maybe a career choice went wrong. Maybe a precious relationship broke down. Maybe they never achieved a dearly held ambition. These things can eat us up inside. They can steal away with our confidence and rob us of so much enjoyment. But what if there was another way to look at failure? That rather than seeing it as as some sort of doomsday scenario it could actually be seen in a much more positive light. What if the experience of failure could be seen as a moment for learning and the opportunity to start again? Henry Ford, one of the leading inventors of the motor car, once said, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Thomas Edison, who took 10 years to invent the battery, a process that cost thousands of pounds and involved hundreds of experiments, he said, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. In fact, if you go online, you'll find that an encounter with failure is a universal human experience. What defines you is how you respond to it. Winston Churchill did poorly at school and was described by his teachers as a disappointment. Steven Spielberg was rejected three times from film school. Elvis Presley was told to go back to driving trucks when he first attempted to sing in public. 
Abraham Lincoln was defeated in eight elections and had a nervous breakdown before becoming president. Steve Jobs was sacked by the company he started. Beethoven was told his musical compositions were hopeless. Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper for lacking imagination. And Einstein could not even speak until he was seven or read properly before he was nine. All these greats of the world experience failure, but instead of folding underneath it, they saw it as an opportunity to learn and begin again. I need to learn from their example. I think I'm improving on this, but I've still got a way to go. Maybe some of you find yourselves in a similar position. So why do I begin in this way? Well, because Exodus chapter 2 comes in two parts, and both of them give us a reflection on failure. There's much wisdom to be gained here. The first part of the chapter is very blunt in the lesson it communicates. Standing against God always leads to failure in the end. Last week in chapter 1, we met the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. Pharaoh has set himself up directly against God. He is trying to control and restrict God's people, Israel, and we've already seen him fail twice. First of all, in his attempt to diminish God's people, he forced them into slavery and hard labour. They were to build his vanity projects for him and they would do it at the crack of his whip. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, verse 12 of chapter 1 tells us that the more he tried to oppress them, the more they multiplied and spread, giving him even more worries to deal with. Second, Pharaoh tried murder. The Hebrew midwives were told to kill all newborn boys on delivery. It was quite a simple plan. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, he did not count on the faith and courage of the Hebrew midwives. They delivered the boys, whisked them off to safety and then lied to Pharaoh's face. Then to rub salt into the wounds, God was so pleased with their actions, he granted the midwives families of their own, so still the Israelites were increasing in number. So by this point, Pharaoh is getting desperate. His third plan is little short of genocide. He orders that all newborn Israelite boys must be thrown into the Nile and drowned. But just look at what happens next. Moses' mother does exactly what Pharaoh had asked. She puts her newborn boy into the Nile. Only she puts him in a little ark first. Pharaoh's own daughter then hears the baby crying and rescues him. Then following an act of cunning on the part of Moses' older sister, Pharaoh's daughter gets Moses' own mother to come and nurse him. Then she sees to it that the mother is paid to bring up the boy. That's right, the Egyptians pay to raise the boy that will ultimately ruin them. We should never be afraid to laugh when reading the Bible. This account is supposed to be funny. It is a wonderfully ironic account of total failure on Pharaoh's part. Although God is never mentioned in these 10 verses through this dark comedy of errors, we can see that the Lord is all over this situation. It brings us to learn a very important lesson. If you consciously choose to stand opposed to God, 
you will fail in the end. Human evil always contains the seeds of its own downfall. In his self-importance, Pharaoh was too hard-set to realise that his plan was completely self-defeating. If he kills all the boys, he has no slaves to work for him in the future. Without question, his callous plan brought great suffering to the Israelite people. Racism and arrogant ideologies always do this. But this plan was completely undone by just ordinary human kindness. Pharaoh was utterly thwarted by the God-given maternal instincts of his own daughter. We really need to grasp this lesson. Yes, evil causes us pain, but in the long run, it will always fail. Anything that stands against the God of justice, goodness and love will fail. Hard-heartedness, in whatever form it comes, will always fail. This is because the creator and sovereign of the universe is always ultimately in control. So maybe the word you need to hear today is this. Don't be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid of the evil you see around you. Don't be afraid of the evil you see on the news and read about in a newspaper. It doesn't matter what it is or who is behind it. God will win the day. Or maybe the message is a little bit more serious for you. Maybe you are conscious that you have been standing against God, disobeying him in a a key area of your life. Maybe now is the time for you to repent and, and turn to him before it's too late. Because be in no doubt, you are heading for failure. Now is the time to start again. Recognize your mistake. Turn around and start relying on God. Open your heart to him and obey his call. You will never regret it. So the message of part one of this chapter is that if you try to stand against God, you are heading for failure in life. But the message to part two is so much better news. In verses 11 to 25, we learn that failure is never the final word with God. By verse 11, Moses has grown up. Well, I say grown up. He's now an adult, at least. Growing up is a whole different ballgame, as we are about to see. As an adult, Moses knows his roots. He knows he is a Hebrew that, unlike most of his people, has been rescued. Consequently, one day his innate sense of justice kicks in. When Moses sees one of his own people being beaten by an Egyptian, he wants to do the right thing. The only problem is he goes about it in completely the wrong way. When Moses attacks the Egyptian and ultimately kills him, he does not think of the consequences to his action. This is all zeal and no brain. Moses acts impetuously, reacting to something in front of him without making himself aware of the context. Consequently, all he succeeds in doing is becoming known as a murderer, a label which turns everyone against him, Hebrews and Egyptians alike. Now, as a Hebrew brought up in Pharaoh's household, Moses had been in a unique position. He had a glorious opportunity to be a peacemaker, an advocate and bring to an end Israel's plight. But by becoming the murderer of an Egyptian, he's absolutely blown it. He's just played in to all the stereotypes, committed the one offence Pharaoh was scared of Israel committing in the first place. 
As a result, Moses now has to flee the land because Pharaoh wants to kill him. Moses had tried so hard to be strong, to be self-sufficient and all-conquering. But by acting alone and impetuously in this way, he has spectacularly failed. But here comes the great turning point of the whole story. Moses' failure turns out to be the very best thing that could have happened to him. By fleeing from Egypt in verse 15, by running away from Pharaoh's palace and the world he has come to know, Moses actually comes home. By seeking asylum in the wilderness, a place to lie low and lick his wounds, Moses stumbles on a house, a wife, a family, a role in the country, creative work, and most importantly, Moses stumbles across the God of his fathers. In verse 16, we're introduced to the priest of Midian. It's here in Midian, under this priest's direction, that Moses first learns about God. More than that, in chapter 3, it's here in Midian that Moses has his first encounter with God. Out here in the desert, Moses also meets his wife, Zipporah. She is the daughter of the priest. And in chapter 4, Zipporah will dramatically save Moses' life when he was on the verge of being struck dead. Moses lived out there in the wilderness for 40 years. But he was not doing nothing during that time. He raised a family, ran a farm and played his part in the local community. This may not have been what Moses thought he should be doing, certainly not when he struck down that Egyptian. This wasn't what Moses thought life had for him at all. But it was what God had for him in that moment. Moses wasn't ready to be the people's hero yet. God was still working on him to prepare him for that task. I hope we can now see why I began with those opening illustrations. What we see as failure is often God's way of moulding and renewing us, of making us what he needs us to be. Is it a coincidence that Moses tends sheep and runs a farm prior to and in preparation for shepherding God's people and ruling Israel? I think not. These are directly transferable skills. Failure may well take us away from our hopes and dreams, what we as human beings had one time hoped for, but failure can take us directly to the place where God can work on us unimpeded. Truly, if we let it, failure can take us closer to God if, during the experience of it, we choose to rely on God all the more. Of course, failure can be a painful experience. I would be the last person to deny that. We don't always see it as an opportunity in the disappointment of the time. In verse 22, Moses calls his son Gershom, which means, I am an alien. How's that for a name? I think it's fair to say that Moses was very disillusioned and disheartened by life at this time. But this is why we must live our lives within the community of other believers. We need loving family and friends. We need brothers and sisters in the faith to come alongside us when things have gone wrong and to keep encouraging us. 
We need them to remind us that God hasn't stopped loving us and that he will turn things around. He is the God with such power and skill that he can even work through our failures to achieve his purposes. Failure never need be the final word with God. When we come to the end of ourselves, if we let him, he will take over. Let us encourage one another with this belief and step out boldly into 2021, both in our personal lives and as a church together. I want to finish with a quote from J.K. Rowling. She was another woman who knew failure before the first Harry Potter went massive. Her marriage had broken down and the book had been rejected by 12 publishers. As a result of that experience of failure before her eventual success, Rowling said this, It is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously you might as well have not lived at all, in which case you fail by default. That is true about our faith life, just as it is about our personal ambitions. It's as we step out in faith for God that we see great things happen. Not everything we try will work. Not every testimony we share will lead someone to faith. But if we're prepared to go on a great adventure with God, we will see the good things he does through ordinary people like you and me. Maybe he will use us to answer the cries of suffering people here on Isla just as he did with Moses in Egypt.